Our first reading tonight comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then 12 through 17. You can find it in your pew Bible if you'd like to read along on page 798. Hear now the word of God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes. Their like has never been from of old, nor will be again after them in ages to come. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even infants at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her canopy. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your heritage a mockery, a byword among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? A word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kalicia. The second text that we have before us this evening is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 16 through 21. Continue now to listen for a word from God. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This too is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Loving and living God, as we turn our hearts and our minds to these texts, we ask again for the gift of your Holy Spirit, that just as you took the dust of the earth and molded it and formed it into a human being, but it only became a living soul, a living thing, when you breathe your holy breath into it. May you breathe your Holy Spirit into these ancient texts, that they might be for us a living word, and that we in turn might be renewed as living souls in your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These two texts that we've just heard read before us, uh, the text from Joel 2 and the text from Matthew 6, are a handful of texts that we read on Ash Wednesday, just about every Ash Wednesday. For those churches that follow the lectionary, the, the lectionary is that three-year cycle of reading through the majority of the Bible— if you follow the lectionary, these same handful of texts come up each Ash Wednesday. So if you're sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I heard Tony preach on this last week or another pastor preach on it the year before, that's the reason why. These texts and a couple other passages are the starting lineup, if you will, of Ash Wednesday. And as most of you know, I'm sure Ash Wednesday is a somber and serious service that leads into a somber and serious season of Lent. Ash Wednesday and Lent are, as we just heard from Rob and Calicia, connected and associated with confession and repentance. We implicitly or explicitly connect both with Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem and the beauty and the horror of the cross. Ash Wednesday is something of a kickoff for the season of Lent. And I want to use the few remaining minutes of this sermon to think about three ways that we might enter in to this season of Lent. 
One of these ways of entering, I think, is clearly denied by the text that I just read from Matthew 6. Another approach is inadequate and yet also probably pretty widespread, if we're honest. That means then that the third option offers a more commendable route. The first way of entering Lent, one that is clearly discouraged by the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, is entering into this season of Lent, this season of spiritual searching and formation in a way that we would be noticed by others. In Matthew 6, Jesus takes issue with what I would call showy religious practices. His words about almsgiving and prayer and fasting have a common thread about the inadequacy of performing the spiritual life. Jesus insists that our spiritual practices are not meant to be performed in front of people in the hopes that we would receive their admiration or their praise. When we're trying to prove or show how spiritual we are, chances are we're doing it wrong and our priorities are out of alignment. Jesus warns against showy religious rituals, things that do more to puff up the ego than bring it closer to God. Now, I recognize the irony of reading this text from Matthew 6 on Ash Wednesday. This is probably the only service in the church year where we will leave this space with a visible marker of our having attended it, whether that marker is on your forehead or on your hand. We are marked by these ashes. They remind us of our mortality. They remind us of our call and our need for repentance. But I doubt that any of us are, are going to run out these doors tonight hoping that people are going to give us high fives or say how proud they are for our religious behaviors tonight. I'm not even sure that the smudge of ash on my forehead holds the sort of cultural capital that it might have held even 20 or 30 years ago. In any case, I don't think it amounts to the sort of public performances of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting that Jesus warns against in Matthew 6. So if you were worried or squirming when I read that text, you don't have to worry. You're off the hook. But on a serious note, as we enter Lent, it is good for us to be aware of those impulses and those dispositions and those desires within us that would lead us to a performative spirituality. The point of Lent and our spiritual lives more generally is not to put on a performance for people or even for God. The point is to draw nearer to God and to grow in likeness of God's character. The first inadequate way of entering Lent focuses too much on the perspective and the praise of others. The second inadequate way of entering Lent, I would say, focuses too much on the self. 
Sometimes Lent in the spiritual life can generate a near obsession with self. Am I, am I doing enough? Am I praying correctly? Have I repented fully enough? And the questions go on. This way of entering Lent can make us think that it all depends on us, on our effort, on our planning. This way of thinking can turn our spiritual lives into a series of checkboxes that we check throughout our days and weeks. And if we do it wrong, if we make a mistake or if we have a bad day, then we think it's all over. Got to start over. Ironically, this way of entering Lent can lead to an odd sort of self-reliance. It can lead either to pride or to despair, but it very rarely leads us to any sort of deeper focus on God or drawing closer to God's ways. I think I saw a reflection of this way of approaching the spiritual life this past Sunday I was just over there in the chapel before the start of the 815 service. I had just finished walking up and down the aisles to say welcome and good morning and how are you? And a a church member flagged me down. And he told me that there was another participant in the pew next to him who had a question that he figured a pastor would be much better at answering. Immediately, my palms got a little bit sweaty And I listened to this gentleman explain to me, he he had a question. He said, Pastor, I, I want to be baptized, but I'm not sure I can live a saved life. What should I do? He explained that he wasn't sure that he could live the new life that baptism represented or maybe demanded. With only seconds left before the service started, I felt ill-equipped to address this man's questions adequately. So I said what I could in the moment. I said, God's grace is always first. I said that God has already said yes to us years before we can say yes to God. I said that our, uh, our, our God's grace covers us in both our best moments, but also in our worst moments. Our faithlessness, faithlessness can never undo or negate God's faithful love and grace, nor can our faithfulness somehow activate or guarantee it. I probably said, or at least I think I should have said, Something about how God's forgiveness never depends on our performance, but on the love and the grace and the mercy of our God. I've thought about this conversation a lot as I was working on this sermon. I suspect that we may not ask the question in the same way as this gentleman, but we might have the same worries Are we doing enough? What if we're doing it all wrong? And can we really believe that God loves and accepts us, warts and all? These questions reflect the idea that our spiritual lives, again, depend entirely or mostly on our efforts. 
But I want to say today that there is another way of entering into Lent, another way of practicing the spiritual life. And we see this third way, this adequate way of entering Lent in the passage from Joel chapter 2. This way of entering, life, entering the spiritual life is not characterized by a focus on others, nor is it characterized by an obsession with self. Instead, it is characterized by a focus on God. It's a pregnant sense of waiting on God's action and God's activity. It's a spirituality grounded in an anticipation of God's movement towards humanity and towards this world. And while we could easily talk generally about this form of spirituality, I want to sit for just a few moments with this peculiar view of God that is offered by Joel chapter 2 and how this view of God might shape and inform our entering into Lent this year. So to get at this particular peculiar view of God in Joel, I think we need to remember just a few things about this very short prophetic writing in the Hebrew Bible. The first thing to note is that it's frustratingly difficult to say anything with certainty about when Joel was written. It is, there are very few clues in the text, and this has led scholars to suggest that it was written as early as 800 BCE or as late as 300 BCE. So, you know, just about a 500-year gap of not knowing. Joel is warning, as we heard in this passage, is warning about an invading army, and yet there's no way for us to be certain whether that army was the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the Persians, or some other group in antiquity. Joel's silence, his reticence in naming historical data, gives Joel a sort of timeless quality to it. It, it, its, its words could fitted, fittingly be applied to any number of the many times that Israel faced an invading army. A second detail for us to be aware of is that in addition to this threat of invasion, Joel is concerned with what is either a very recent or perhaps a imminent natural disaster a locust infestation. Now, let me say at the onset, I am not an expert on locust migration patterns or my locust anything. But what I've come to find out, what I've learned is that Palestine, the land of Israel, is situated right in the middle of a migration path of locusts. It starts in, in, the, in the south in Sudan and it moves upward northeast through Africa and eventually into the land known as the Levant, where Palestine is located. These locust movements have occurred so frequently throughout history and even into the present day that this is another element of the timeless quality of Joel. The third and final detail about Joel and we heard it in the text tonight, is that Joel speaks of this ominous day of the Lord. 
It's quite possible that, that Joel thought of this day of the Lord as uh, the, the locust infestation, or perhaps he thought about it as the invading army, or maybe the day of the Lord was something somewhere in the future. But unlike other prophets, uh, this day of the Lord wasn't associated with the doom and the gloom and the, the foment and the fervor, fervor of God's final judgment at the end of days. Rather, it was a sort of anticipation in God's decisive action, God's decisive intervention in history. It's a waiting on that. Joel's words, like the words of many of our biblical prophets, helped the people of Israel respond to these twin crises, the ecological crisis of the locusts and the geopolitical crisis of an invading army. But unlike some of the other prophets, Joel doesn't seem to offer any sense of blame or any explanation of why Israel is facing these challenges. Joel does not blame them on any particular action or disposition like idolatry or social injustice. Joel's words do not attempt to answer the why. Instead, they offer something more of a, of a way to respond to these realities. And that response is summed up in this question. To whom will Israel turn in their time of crisis? The Hebrew word for turn in our passage is shuv. And this word very often in the Hebrew Bible signals repentance. This is one of its primary meanings. But I love how Will Gaffney, who is a professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School and one of our Theoed speakers from a few years back, I love what she does with this verb shuv in Joel 2. She suggests that the turning imagined in Joel 2 is better understood as rededication. She suggests that Joel 2 is a call to draw closer to God, to turn closer to God. It is a call for the whole community, the elders and the children, and yes, even the infants, to rededicate themselves to God. The mention of prayer and fasting far from performances for others or support for a self-centered spirituality are just two of the means by which they, and perhaps we, draw closer to God. And there is one final thing that this passage from Joel 2 offers us. We are told, according to Joel 2, that we are to draw closer to the God who relents. Since I first read this passage, thinking about our service several days ago, I've been, I've been captivated by this idea that God relents. God relents. On the surface, this may not seem like a good thing. 
It might seem like God is changing God's mind. At best, it would make God seem indecisive. At worst, it would make God seem fickle. Can we trust a God who relents? Theologians and philosophers and pastors throughout the ages have wrestled with the idea of a God who relents. Some have simply tried to explain it away, insisting that God is not like us human beings. God is certainly not prone to indecision or fickleness. And there are even strands in the Bible that run parallel and perhaps in tension with this idea of God relenting that say, in fact, God never changes God's mind. This is a tension in the Bible itself. But as we enter into Lent this, this year, I would invite us to see this peculiar view of God in Joel 2 as good news. It is good news that we are called to rededicate our lives and rededicate our, 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 our spiritual practices towards the God who relents. It's good news for two reasons. The first is it reminds us that God is radically free. God is uh, not beholden to our laws or our behavior. God is not limited by our theological or our political systems. God can do what God chooses to do. God is radically free. But second, God is radically good. And that God's relenting, God's turning, God's changing God's mind is always a relenting towards goodness and towards grace and towards love and towards mercy. Scripture is consistent in this witness. When God relents, when God changes course, God moves in the direction of salvation and redemption. Our relenting God is the God who moves towards us. Our relenting God is the God who turns toward us, even as we turn towards God. According to Joel 2, God relents of punishment. But this shouldn't make us think that God is somehow inconsistent or unreliable. Even as God relents of punishment, God remains unrelenting in God's character, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, as the text from Joel makes clear. This year, I pray that we will all enter Lent focused on this God who relents, as we face the crises and the uncertainties of our own days, I pray that this season of Lent will be a season of rededicating ourselves individually and as a community of faith to this God of unrelenting grace and mercy and love. May we turn to God, not to ourselves or the praise of others as we journey toward Easter, and may we seek and anticipate God's decisive 
turning towards us, revealed so clearly in the cross and in the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.